My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. And I'm so glad you're joining me as we continue our journey through the book of the Gospel of Matthew. The good news, that's all what the word gospel means, good news of Matthew. And I uh, encourage you, if you've not subscribed to my YouTube channel, uh, I know some of you follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, listen to me on podcasts, uh, which is all great. I keep all the links in the descriptions uh, of every post. and I encourage you, probably YouTube is maybe the easiest to go and find playlists of entire books, uh, but you can also do that uh, in other ways as well. But let's get the Word of God out there. And your comments just mean so much. I know they inspire and encourage people so much. So thank you for doing that. And uh, I pray that you continue to do it. Today, we are looking at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to break Matthew chapter 5 up into uh, four chunks if you like. And the reason is, is because this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he's baptized by John the Baptist. Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. He goes in the wilderness, uh, tempted by the devil, uh, defeats the devil's temptations, comes out of that. And then the very first thing he does is preaches the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon of all time is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that's Matthew chapter 5. And it has so much in it that I want to make sure that we really uh, dig in and get as much out of it as we possibly can. So let's start with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is after, end of chapter 4, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So he's got multitudes already following him now, okay? This is because he's been teaching in the synagogues of Galilee. And seeing the multitudes, verse 1, he went up on a mountain where he was seated and his disciples came to him. Now, Jesus didn't go up on the mountain to get away from the disciples. Uh, Jesus was removing himself from his location to a different location that would set him up to teach this particular message. And Jesus did give this teaching to his disciples, but it wasn't just the 12. You have to remember the 12 haven't been described by Matthew yet. He hasn't even told us who they are. Uh, we know who they are. We know who some of them are, but not all of them. Uh, there is a, a sense here that This involves the 12 that were his disciples that we know of, but also disciples as in followers of him uh, who formed part of the multitudes. Now, Luke, in his gospel, uh, talks about this same basic material being spoken uh, to a, in Luke chapter 6, verse 7, uh, spoken to a crowd of his disciples, a crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples. Uh, and so we have... A, a sense here of Jesus speaking this message to his disciples, but his disciples in a very broad sense. Uh, Spurgeon said this about uh, why Jesus went up on a mountain versus doing something else. He said, going to a crypt or a cavern would have been out of all character for a message which is to be published upon the housetops and preached to every creature under heaven. <laughs> then 
Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, I think this is really amazing because uh, he did this when he was seated. Uh, this was a common posture for teaching people in that time was for the teacher to sit and for everybody else to stand and to listen. That was the custom. And Matthew's record here tells us that Jesus is speaking and teaching. It's God speaking, but God, it's not like God spoke when he spoke in the Old Testament through prophets. Now he's speaking himself through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the truth of God is coming out through the personality of God that they, they don't realize that that's what they're hearing. Uh, and his disciples, all of them are leaning in. You can just imagine as he's teaching this and he opens his mouth. What does that mean? He opens his mouth and taught them. That means that there must have been times when he taught them and he didn't open his mouth. Sometimes we're taught things by just watching God. That's why it's so important to make sure that we watch God. That's why it's so important to make sure that we're observing how he acts. Uh, and that's what the disciples were doing with Jesus. And here we have Jesus and he opens his mouth and he uses his voice in a very strong way. He's got no amplification system there. He's speaking to the crowd with energy and he's projecting his thoughts with this incredible uh, strength of character. Spurgeon made a great observation and I'm going to quote from him a lot today. He said, it is not superfluous to say that he opened his mouth and he taught them for he had taught them often with his mouth closed. And uh, what they heard was a message that from that day to this has been recognized as the sum total of Jesus or anybody for that matter's ethical teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to live. David Guzik said, it has been said if you look at all the good advice for how to live ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out all the foolishness, boiled it all down to the real essentials, you would be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. Now, it presents here this, this message that he's speaking, uh, a very radically different agenda than what the nation of Israel was expecting from their Messiah. Because it didn't talk about political blessings or material blessings uh, of the Messiah's reign. Instead, it talked about the spiritual implications of the rule of Jesus in our lives. And this message tells us how are we supposed to live when Jesus is our Lord, when we accept his gift of salvation. And it's very important to understand that the Sermon on the Mount uh, is not about salvation. It lays out for us what we are to do when we have gone through the process of being saved and we're on the other side and now so we've gone from a follower then the sermon on the mount teaches us how to become a disciple that's the difference jesus didn't want multitudes just to follow him he wanted them to become disciples disciplined followers and he was saying this is how i'm going to show you and teach you how to do it this is about if you have me as your king these are the ethics that you will live your daily lives with and we can regard this as Jesus training, if you like. It's like a training sermon. Uh, it's the message that he wanted the disciples and the multitudes to carry in their hearts and then to carry on with them through the generations and pass on. That's what we're meant to do. Same thing. And it's very clear that this message had a huge impact on the early church because they talked about it constantly. It's referred to not just in the Bible, but in Jewish historians and Roman historians, uh, Greek historians. Now, 
Jesus then starts his ministry with his, the very first sermon. Okay, this is the first sermon that he's preaching. And he starts it with the Beatitudes, the blessings, if you like. And it really is, if you break it down, it's the be attitudes. In other, in other words, it's the attitudes that you and I should be. <laughs> uh, it's the ones that we should be in. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is about to set forward the, the aspirations that we should have as disciples of his. And they are character traits that we have to learn by following him. And all of these Beatitudes are character traits that should be the goal of every Christian. Not some of them should be the goal of every Christian. All of them should be the goal of every Christian. And that is very important for us to understand as we read this. Okay, so start off. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus promised blessing to his disciples. He promised that the poor in spirit would be blessed. And and the idea behind the ancient Greek word that's used here for the word blessed is the word happy. But it's not the but it's in it's in the truest godliest sense of the word happy. It's not in the our modern sense of the word happy uh, about being you know entertained happy. Um, no, William Barclay says this: this same word for blessed, which in some sense means happy, is applied to God in First Timothy chapter one verse eleven according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Makarios, which is the Greek word, then describes that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. Now, here's a very interesting observation by Charles Spurgeon. You have not failed to notice that the last word of the Old Testament is curse. And it is suggestive that the opening sermon of our Lord's ministry commences with the word blessed. The last word in the Bible, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, Old Testament, the very last word is the word curse. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth with his ministry was the word blessed. I think that's amazing. Uh, and, And what does he start off by saying? Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. That's not about a confession of uh, our insignificance or that we have no intrinsic value uh, because that's just not true. Uh, what it is, it's a confession that we're sinful, that we're rebellious, and that we wouldn't have really any moral virtues that would ever be adequate to commend us to God. And in other words, the poor in spirit recognize that they have no spiritual assets that are worth anything to God. They know that they, in a way, are spiritually bankrupt. Now, the ancient Greeks had two words uh, for poor uh, and the poor classes of people. They were working poor and the truly poor. In other words, those people who had jobs and they were poor didn't earn a lot, and then the poor who had absolutely nothing. Jesus uses the word for truly poor. In other words, people, they, they have nothing, okay? Uh, it indicates somebody who has to beg for whatever they have or whatever they get. Now, poverty, being poor of spirit or having poverty of spirit, it's not something that you can, you know, work yourself up into by hating yourself. 
It's, it can only happen through the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and a response to him working in our lives. And it's interesting that this is the very first beatitude because this is where we start with God. Uh, a ladder, Spurgeon said, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground or feeble climbers will never be able to mount it. It would, be, it would have been a grievous discouragement to those struggling in faith if the first blessing had been given to the pure in heart. To that excellence, the young beginner makes no claim, while to poverty of spirit, he can reach without going beyond his line. And he says this about the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who are poor in spirit are so poor they must beg are rewarded. What are they rewarded with? They're rewarded with receiving the kingdom of heaven because poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom of heaven. And as long as we have any delusions about our own spiritual resources, then we can't receive anything from God. And we can't receive all the things that we absolutely need to receive in order to be saved. And the poor in spirit are people who, uh, uh, Spurgeon again said this, they are people who are lifted from the dunghill and set not among the hired servants in the field, but among the princes of the kingdom. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? And the call to be poor in spirit is placed first here for a reason because it puts the following commands, the ones that are about to come into perspective because they cannot be fulfilled in your own strength. In other words, if you don't have poverty in your spirit, you won't be able to do the rest of the things that Jesus is telling you to do. Uh, It's only through a spiritual beggar's reliance on God that we can fulfill what he wants us to fulfill. Uh, No one mourns until they have lost everything. And no one is meek unless they have a humble view of themselves. Um, And you can't be meek towards others unless you have that in yourself. If you don't sense your own need, if you don't sense your own poverty, then you're never going to hunger or thirst after righteousness. If you have too high of a view of yourself, you're going to find it very difficult to be merciful to others. And this is what Jesus was setting them up for. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the Greek word for to mourn here, that's used here, it's the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. And it's the word which is used for mourning the dead, for the passionate lament for one who was loved, is what William Barclay said. And those who mourn over their sin and over their sinful condition are promised comfort. It's not just about mourning for, for people we've lost. We, uh, we've lost the true meaning of this verse. We think blessed are those who mourn only applies to people who have lost a lot. No, it's, it's mourning what you have lost, what you have given up. It's you have given up your sinful condition. You, you've given, you, you, what do you, what do you promised? You promised comfort. God allows the grief into our lives as a path, not a destination. And those who mourn can know something very special about God, which is the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 3, we understand that Jesus uh, was a man of sorrows and we now have a closeness to him because he was acquainted with grief, Isaiah said in chapter 53, verse 5. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's impossible actually to translate the Greek word that's used for meek here. It's it's the word praus, P-R-A-U-S, and, and with just one English word because we just can't do it. Uh, it has the idea of a proper balance between anger and indifference, uh, a, a powerful personality that's properly controlled and has humility. And in the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person was not passive or somebody easily pushed around. Uh, the main idea behind the word meek was strength under control. That's what it was. Like a, like a strong stallion, David Guzik says. A strong stallion that was trained to do the job instead of tr- running wild. Uh, D.A. Carson. In general, the Greeks considered meekness a vice because they failed to distinguish it from servility, being able to serve. To be meek towards others implies freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. Uh, to be meek means being ready to show a willingness to submit and to work under proper authority. It shows a willingness to disregard your own rights and your own privileges. And what happens when you do that? You will inherit the earth. We can only be meek, willing to control our own desire for our rights and privileges because we're confident that God's watching out for us, that he's going to protect our cause. And the promise they shall inherit the earth proves that God will not allow the meek ones to end up at the short end of the stick. Uh, Spurgeon, I had only to look upon it, all as the sun shone upon it, and then to look up to heaven and say, my father... This is all thine, and therefore it is all mine. For I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So in this sense, the meek-spirited man inherits the whole earth. So in these first three amazing Beatitudes, we notice something here that the natural man finds no happiness or blessedness in spiritual poverty, mourning or meekness. They are only a blessing for the spiritual man, those who are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This describes a profound hunger that, that can't be satisfied by snacking. Okay, it's a longer that endures, a longing, sorry, that endures, and and it's never completely satisfied. Uh, pretty much the, this side of it, of eternity, uh, uh, David Guzik. The, this passion is real, just like hunger and thirst are real. This passion passion is natural, just like hunger and thirst are natural in a healthy person. This passion is intense, just like hunger and thirst can be. This passion can be painful, just like real hunger and thirst can cause pain. This passion is a driving force, just like hunger and thirst can drive a man. And this passion is a sign of health, just like hunger and thirst show health. We see Christians hungering for many things, power, authority, success, comfort, happiness. But how many people hunger and thirst for righteousness? This is the mark of a disciple. And and it's good to remember that Jesus said that uh, this is something that was important, and he said it in a day and, and to a culture that actually really knew what it was like to be physically hungry and physically thirsty. Uh, in the Western world uh, that a lot of people live, it, it's so often distant from the basic needs uh, of hunger and thirst that some people find it very difficult 
to hunger and thirst after righteousness because they don't know what it means to hunger and thirst. Uh, Let me read to you two quotes from uh, Spurgeon. Alas, it is not enough for me to know that my sin is forgiven. I have a fountain of sin within my heart and bitter waters continually flow from it. Oh, that my nature could be changed so that I, the lover of sin, could be made a lover of that which is good, that I, now full of evil, could become full of holiness. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He does not hunger and thirst that his own political party may get into power, but he does hunger and thirst that righteousness may be done in the land in which he lives. That's a quote by Spurgeon over a 100 years ago and so apt to the circumstances of life we find ourselves in now. And what is the blessing from Jesus? For they shall be filled. Jesus promised to fill the hungry, to fill them with as much as they could eat, which is a strange filling that both satisfies us and keeps us longing for more. So we have to work out what that looks like. That's Jesus in the wilderness being satisfied by the bread of the word, but also then later on being satisfied by physical bread. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Guzik said this, When this beatitude addresses those who will show mercy, it speaks to those who have already received mercy. It is mercy to be emptied of your pride and brought to poverty of spirit. It is mercy to be brought to mourning over your spiritual condition. It is mercy to receive the grace of meekness and to become gentle. It is mercy to be made hungry and thirsty after righteousness. Therefore, this one who is expected to show mercy is one who has already received it. The merciful one is going to show it to those who are weaker and poorer. The merciful one will always look for those who weep and mourn. The merciful one is going to be forgiving to other people, always looking to restore broken relationships. The merciful one is going to be merciful to the character of other people, choose to think the best of them whenever possible. The merciful merciful one will not expect too much from others. The merciful one will be compassionate to those who are outwardly sinful. And the merciful one will have a care for the souls of all men and women. If you want mercy from others, especially from God, then you should take care to be merciful to others. Some people wonder why God showed such incredible mercy to King David, especially when you think of all the horrible and terrible ways he sinned. But one reason God gave him such mercy is because David was notably merciful to King Saul. And there were, uh, on several occasions, he was kind to King Saul when King Saul was very unworthy of David's kindness. In David, the merciful, somebody who was merciful, he then obtained mercy himself. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, In the ancient Greek, the phrase pure of heart has the idea of straightness, honesty, clarity. And there's two ideas connected to this. One is the inner moral purity as opposed to the image of purity or ceremonial purity. The other idea is of a single undivided heart, a pure heart, those who are utterly sincere. They're not divided in their devotion or the commitment to God. And, and what does Jesus say about them? They shall see God. 
The pure of heart receive the most incredibly awesome and wonderful reward. They will enjoy greater intimacy with God than they could ever have imagined. Matthew Poole. For though no mortal eye can see and comprehend the essence of God, yet these men shall by an eye of faith see and enjoy God in this life, though in a glass more darkly and in the life to come face to face. The heart is something that should be pure. That's what a blessed heart will receive. Somebody who is pure in heart can see God in nature. They can see God in scripture. They can see God in their church family. And ultimately, this relationship with God must become, this pure-hearted relationship with God must become our greatest motivation for purity, greater than a fear of getting caught, greater than a court of the fear fear of consequences. No, it should be so that we can see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's the next verse? Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, this doesn't describe people who live in peace, but those who actually bring peace, uh, overcoming evil with good. And one way to accomplish this is by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God has entrusted to us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling man to God. How does that happen? Through the gospel message. And when we evangelize, when we tell people about Jesus, then we make, make peace between man and God. And, uh, and then people have the opportunity to be uh, in a position where they can reject or accept it. But God will have done everything he needed to do to bring reconciliation. Um, if you look at it this way, uh, evangelism, in the process of evangelism, we make peace between man and the God that people either reject or are offended by. I think that's an important point. And we commonly think of this peacemaking work as being the job of just one person between two fighting parties. That's what we think, a peacemaker. We think, well, this person's fighting, this person's fighting. I'll be the peacemaker. Oh, yes, that's what I am. And that's one way that this can be fulfilled. But but also you can end a conflict and be a peacemaker when they are a party to a conflict. Uh, when they are the injured or the offending party. The peacemaker doesn't need to be a mediator in the middle. You can be one of the opposing parties and be the peacemaker in that process. For they shall be called the sons of God. The reward of peacemakers is that they are recognized as true children of God. They share his passion for peace, his passion for reconciliation, the, the breaking down of walls between people. Uh, Guzik says this, he is blessed by God. Though the peacemaker may be ill-treated by man, he is blessed by God. He is blessed to be among the children of God, adopted into his family and surrounded by his brothers and sisters. Spurgeon said this, And he sometimes putteth himself between the two when they are very angry, and he taketh the blows from both sides. For he knows that Jesus so did, who took the blows from his father and from us also, that so by suffering in our stead, Peace might be made between God and man. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
These blessed ones are persecuted for righteousness sake and for Jesus sake, which is what he says, for my sake, not for their own fanaticism. Peter recognized that suffering might come to some Christians for reasons other than just their faithfulness to Jesus. He talked about that in 1 Peter chapter 4. And, and this is not what Jesus is addressing here. Unfortunately, the, the character traits described in the Beatitudes, are, they're not valued in, in modern culture. We don't, we don't give recognition or awards to people who are the most pure in heart or the most poor in spirit. Uh, our culture actually doesn't think very much of those kind of character traits at all. Uh, but they do describe the character traits of the citizens of God's kingdom. So, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. G. Campbell Morgan says this, So King Jesus adds an eighth beatitude. And that a double one for those who, because of their loyalty, endure suffering. Verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus brings insight into insults and spoken malice. And he brings it into the sphere of persecution. We can't limit our idea of persecution just only physical oppression or physical torture. In, in, in Matthew 5 verse 10, they, people are persecuted, the blessed are persecuted for righteousness sake. In this verse, they're persecuted for the sake of Jesus, which shows that Jesus expected that their righteous lives would be lived after his example and in order to honor him. Now, it didn't take very long for these words of Jesus to ring true to his followers because early Christians heard many enemies say all kinds of evils against them and falsely accuse them for Jesus' sake. Uh, early Christians were accused of cannibalism, uh, immorality, revolutionary fanaticism. Uh, they were known for splitting families up. They were, they were blamed for treason. Uh, these are all the things that they were called falsely for Jesus' sake. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Literally, we could translate this, this phrase, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. We could, we could translate it to say that the persecuted should leap for joy, get super excited. Why? Because the persecuted are going to have a great reward in heaven. Uh, they're in good company. Whose company are they in? The persecution of the prophets who were also persecuted. Now, um, Trap names some of these men who did in fact rejoice and were exceedingly glad when persecuted. I'll read some of them to you. George Roper came to the stake hundreds of years ago, leaping for joy, and he hugged the stake that he was about to be burned on and treated it like it was a friend. Lawrence Saunders, who with a smiling face embraced the stake of his execution and kissed it, saying, welcome to the cross of Christ. Welcome, everlasting life. Yet, the world persecutes these good people because the values and the character that is expressed in these beatitudes, these attitudes that we should be, are so opposite to the world's way of thinking. Our persecution uh, may not be much compared to others, but if no one speaks evil of you, 
are these Beatitudes traits in your life? And I think that's the way we need to judge it, is if nobody's saying bad things against us, then maybe we're not living the way we're meant to. Uh, if there isn't persecution. And this is my observation for this today, is that there's an easy way to be blessed. It's just do these things. That's it. If you're like, oh, I just wish I could just see the blessing of God. Well, here you go. Do this. If you want, blessed are, there you go. So this that's how you'll be blessed, is displaying these character traits. The thing is, is that we don't like <laughs> the last outcome of what it means to be blessed. We don't want to be persecuted. So therefore, we get to verse 10 and go, blessed are those who are... Per- Ooh, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm out. Uh, hey, that's part of the deal. But the reality is, is that ours is the kingdom of heaven when we are persecuted. Ours is the kingdom of heaven when we are blessed and we're blessed because of Jesus. That's amazing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us these attitudes that we should have in our lives, as followers, but more as disciples, disciplined followers of Jesus Christ. Thank you for setting these out so clearly for us. I pray, Lord, for us when we are persecuted that we wouldn't back down, but we would push forward. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.